Thanks for being here to worship with us this morning. I know some of you are still recovering from the flood or from wet basements and all those sorts of things. Um, and we're just glad that you're here to worship with us. I was uh, actually out on the river last week as people were preparing uh, for the flood, and it was just an uh, incredible experience for me to just see all of this this concern and all this uncertainty and everything as people are kind of trying to figure out, you know, what do we move and where do we move it? And there's all this activity on the river and the prediction of how high the water is going to get kept changing. One minute it's high, the next minute, oh, they're backing off, and then it's even higher than it was originally. Uh, our friends trying to pull a trailer out from back behind a garage and their their jeep gets stuck in the mud and i mean it's like buried deep in the ruts and i think for a while we thought they're going to lose the jeep i mean and, and there were just all these decisions that they had to make about about what they could keep and and what they maybe just had to let go of and hope for the best and they're just at the mercy of this river that's just out of control right it's just flowing downstream and it's like threatening to take their, their homes and their stuff and, and their cars and all the stuff, but also it's threatening to take their, their dreams and, and, and this joy of this life that they have out on the river. Um, for, for me, it was just this kind of helpless, kind of paralyzing feeling. And, and um, yeah, there were some like, like words of frustration that were shared, maybe a, maybe a few swears, you know, in private, uh, <laughs> as this frustration kind of came up. But by and large, um, what I was really impressed was, was, how this group of people, they just kind of banded together to, to kind of look at this thing as, all right, we're going to choose to see this as an adventure, and there's no way we're going to let this destructive force of nature uh, defeat us or hold our lives hostage or keep us from enjoying this life we've come to know. And uh, I shared this with a friend of mine, Doug Tenson, who lives out on the river. He said, really, you saw all of that? And I was like, yeah, it surprised me too. <laughs> Because I, I would not be able to live out there. I mean, I would not have the same resolve that these people have. Um, I, I was uh, having lunch with another friend uh, just this last week, and he's been out of work for several weeks. And uh, he's out of vacation days. He's out of sick days. He's, wor- he's, you know, he's off without pay. The doctors have given all these tests to try to figure out what's going on with him. They just can't come up with any answers. And I think... How demoralizing it is to be in a position like that. I think of a number of the, of the friends and, and the family members that we talk to who they and their kids are just being held hostage by depression, by mental illness, by other struggles. And, and, and whether it's this personal level that some of us are, are encountering of struggle or it's like on a broader level that our whole country is stuck as, as we look at how racism and violence and deep division just kind of holds our country in its grip and threatens to keep us from moving forward. I think there's all these things in life that come at us that threaten us and and try to hold us back from living a life of real faith and living the abundant life that Jesus invites us into. And and at times it just seems like the world's caving in and God's not in control. Where is he? And this morning, as Carl said, we're starting this five-week series called Thriving in a Broken World. And we're looking at Daniel's story in the Bible. And we're going to look at how God might help us and how he might use us to help others thrive in the midst of all this brokenness and these challenges. Uh, in this book, uh, in the Old Testament uh, book of Daniel, uh, Larry Osborne actually observes five important qualities of Daniel's faith that he exhibited during this time of exile. So those are on the slide. It's surrender, faithfulness, humility, wisdom, and hope. And what we see is by committing to, to live these out in the midst of severe testing uh, and trials, God actually uses Daniel to pave away, not just so that his friends can survive, but so that they can thrive and so that even they can help their enemy thrive 
while they're in captivity. It's an amazing story. Daniel's this young guy who's, who's taken from his home and is held hostage for 70 years by three crazy kings who are out of control. And it's, he's taken to this place that seems completely devoid, completely absent of God. So despite losing all the people that he loves, despite having his dreams just come to a sudden end and his future kind of look like it's, it's gone, Daniel chooses to trust God. He chooses to remain faithful to God. And so before we dig into chapter 1, I just want to encourage you to read this story along with us. Read those first six chapters of this story over the next five weeks. Um, uh, you can get it a daily scripture online. You can sign up on our website. It will be sent right to your inbox or you can grab your own Bible and just read those six chapters along with us as we go through it. Now, this morning we're talking about Daniel's faithfulness, his faith in the middle of this. And, and I just want you to know as we get started, the King Jehoiakim, um, who was the king in Judah, where Daniel lived before he was taken, held hostage. And King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the bad guy. He's the guy who's, who's um, going around, conquering the world. He's building his evil empire. And King Jehoiakim had struck a deal with King Nebuchadnezzar to keep the king, the evil king, from, from invading his country. And so what happens is King Jehoiakim is, he's living pretty high in the hog. He's kind of benefiting from all of this while his people and his country, many of them are being oppressed and held hostage by the evil King Nebuchadnezzar. And God's prophets time and time again warn King Jehoiakim, stop what you're doing. Stop sacrificing your people. Start trusting in God. And he refuses to. And in fact, then he even decides he's going to have a surprise attack on King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar is too smart. He figures it out. And so he fires this, this preemptive strike. And that's where we pick up the beginning of Daniel. This is what we read in verse 1 of the, of the first chapter. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. And what I want you to know about this, this is a resounding defeat, and it's a resounding defeat by a wicked, evil king in an evil empire. Babylon is, is mentioned in the Bible as the personification of evil. It was called the city of gods because there were so many gods, supposedly, but it was actually one of the most godless empires that's ever existed in our world. And, and we, today, we can't even fathom the kind of hostility and the kind of chaos and evil that was endured by those who believed in God during this time. And King Nebi, he's, he's, this, he's a bad, bad dude. In fact, what we see in this story, when he, when he takes those, those articles from the temple of God and he takes them back to his country and he puts them up on his trophy case and he, and he snaps a picture and puts it on his snap story for the whole world to see, right? He's actually mocking God. He's saying God is dead. The, the one true living God, the one who you say is the true living God, he is no longer. In fact, he's no match for me because I am a God. It reminds me of the time that Kanye West was quoted as saying, nobody can tell me where I can go and can't go. Man, I'm the number one living and breathing rock star on the planet. My greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself perform live. I am a God. I think about Nebuchadnezzar and Kanye, and I think the only difference that separates them is that Nebuchadnezzar could actually back this up. I'm sorry about that, Kanye, but uh, it's true. Back in the story. All right, the king 
orders Ashman as chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. We see, what we see here is Daniel and his friends. They were born into and they grew up in God's family. Their names actually signified that they were children of God. And they worshipped God. They lived in his holy city. They prayed to God in the temple. They trusted God. And they were among the brightest and the best in God's kingdom. You could not have asked for a better start in life. And I'm sure that Daniel and his friends felt pretty good about who they were. They felt pretty good about who God was. They felt pretty good about their faith in God and about their future. And all of a sudden, one day, it's just all taken from them. It all comes crashing down. And they're rounded up and they're chained up and they're forced to march 500 miles from home to Babylon where they're trained in the literature and the language of Babylon In fact, this meant that they were forced to learn things like sorcery and divination and dark occult kinds of things, the satanic stuff that the Babylonians believed explained the way that the world worked. And it was the kind of evil things that they were doing to try to control and take control of the world and manipulate it. And all of these things were violently opposed to what Daniel believed, to what his friends believed, and to how they practiced in their life. So the king, then he, he changes their names even. He tries to strip them of their own identity to say, you're no longer children of that God. You're children of this other God. And it's all the systematic approach, this method to try to brainwash them, to try to reprogram and indoctrinate them into this whole new evil way of the world. And Daniel and his friends, finally, what I want you to know is that they were also most likely turned into eunuchs. Because the king would not want these handsome, athletic, smart men to become a temptation for his wives in the palace. Now this is a bad day. People thought the Hawkeyes had a bad day yesterday. (laughs) This is a bad day, right? So you and I have had bad days. Nothing like this. Many of his family and friends are dead or they're being tortured back in their homeland. Held as prisoners. This is a young teenager who's facing years and years of forced slavery to this, this psychopath king 500 miles from his home. And he and his friends have been castrated. And all this because they were caught in the backwash of their king's sin. It had nothing to do with them or what they had done. I was a junior in high school. I was thinking, or junior high school. I, we took a field trip to the Salisbury house. I was thinking about this. Uh, my friends had kind of dared me to spit over the balcony of a railing. And they said, I'll give you five. We'll give you five bucks. Ha ha ha. You know, being the wise and smart and thoughtful eighth grader, I thought about it for a couple minutes. And I thought, five bucks is five bucks, right? <laughs> Bad choice, kids. Do not do this. But I didn't even look. I just kind of spit over the railing. And long story short, 
we were not allowed on that bus ride home to stop for any treats, to stop for a snack, to stop and get anything to drink. It was hot. People were angry. I hadn't stepped up to accept responsibility. I had done this, so people were wondering, who did this, and whose fault is this, and why are we doing all of this, and they're complaining about it, you know, and it was a bad deal. They wanted to know, and I think it's, it's so unfair to be punished because of what something somebody else had done. And I just think part of the risk of belonging in community that we face is that sometimes we bear the weight of the negative consequences that result from others' bad choices, from others' sin. Some of you have felt that weight in your own lives. It's broken up relationships, friendships. It's broken up marriages. It's, it's broken up business and, and future plans. How do you move forward when that happens in your life? This is what Daniel does. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the official had appointed, Please test your servants for ten days. Give nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. We'll take responsibility for whatever happens next. So he agreed to this and he tested them for ten days. At the end of those ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the king's royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables instead. And Daniel made a lot of friends. And to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the others in his whole kingdom. I have no idea what kind of encounter Daniel had had with God to this point. We, we do know, as we said, that he had had this privileged beginning, this fast start to his faith. But of course, that had crashed, landed now, and now he's in the worst of all possible circumstances. So I think it would be reasonable to, to think that maybe Daniel felt like his faith had failed him. And maybe to wonder, you know, where is God? Or to feel like, well, God's rejected us or he's abandoned us. Or, or even to question, is God even real? He's facing overwhelming odds in a, in a world that's dead set against him and his faith. And it, it wouldn't be, you know, I, I don't think I could blame Daniel if he decided, I'm just going to walk away from my faith right now. You know what, that didn't work out. It was good while it lasted, but obviously that's not the right way. So I'm just going to see what life in Babylon is like right now. But he doesn't do that. Daniel doesn't let these feelings, he doesn't let his success or his failure, he doesn't doesn't let um, his his quick start and being born into the right family and all that stuff determine what he's going to do next. Daniel's faith determines the next step he takes. 
He doesn't decide to, to work harder or to try to believe more. He actually decides to do something. It says Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Daniel resolves to remain faithful to God's ways, even while he's in this wild world. I love that word resolve. Right? It means that Daniel basically he makes up his mind. He just kind of purposed in his heart. He determined with his will. He made a decision to do something that no matter what, he was going to go this way. He decided to remain faithful to God. And this one decision, this one resolution he makes in the midst of severe testing and trials, it shows us this great picture of how real faith can bless a broken world. It's a gift to us. So here's what I think Daniel's real faith looked like. I think his real faith, real faith resolves to reject passivity. Resolves to expect God to show up and, and keep an eternal perspective. To accept responsibility. To lead and to love courageously. It's real. It spells out real. Reject faith. Ex- expect God to show up. Accept responsibility. Lead courageously. And what we see when the first test comes upon Daniel, the first thing he does is he rejects passive, passivity. And you, you read it in the story how he, he rejected the food that the king gave him. He wasn't going to accept that. But even before that, I think Daniel is rejecting passivity, right? He refused to listen to those voices inside and outside his head that said, God is dead. He refused to give in to this, this idea, this lie that his faith had failed him. He doesn't complain. He doesn't whine. He just simply refused to passively accept that like this was the end of his life or this, he had no future. This was the end of his story. What can explain that other than this resolve and this decision to reject passivity? Rejecting passivity is the stubborn determination to refuse to give in to lies, to hopeless circumstances or to sin or anything else that can separate us from the love and the will of God. Let me say this again, okay? Rejecting passivity is the stubborn determination to refuse to give in to anything that tries to separate us from God's love and His plan for our lives. Uh, when we're, when we're tempted and tested, at least when I am, I know that one of the biggest challenges to rejecting passivity, um, is the voices that go on inside my head. And um, that can be so deceitful and destructive. I know that some of you struggle with the same thing because I was meeting with a, a young woman in my office just this week and she was sharing with me um, how her dream had died like twice in the last year. She'd had this great, amazing job, and, but she had to make some difficult cho- choices. And it was really disappointing for her. And um, she was struggling to kind of move on and move forward into whatever was next. And as we both sat there and listened... We could hear these voices of regret that were going on in her head that were lying to her, telling her about things that that she didn't do or things that she should have done or should have done differently. That was all a bunch of lies. Because she'd actually done these things. She'd actually done them very well. She'd made a huge impact on her organization. And her story is still being written. It's not the end of her story, but she was having trouble believing this and accepting that in, you know, considering what the voice in her head was telling her. But rejecting passivity means to stubbornly refuse to accept those lies and accept anything that tries to keep us from God's future. I want to encourage you, when things get hard, when you face tests like this, don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. Remind yourself of God's promises of who He is. 
of who you are, of the plans he has for you, the plans that he's working out, and surround yourself with people who will do the same, who will speak God's truth and his promise and his life into your current situation, whatever it is. This is exactly what my friends had to do out there on the river. You know, they had all these voices, people telling them that they were crazy for living out on the river. And their own minds are thinking, we're crazy for living out on the river. They had to fight through this. It's exactly what Daniel had to do too. And Daniel has people who come around him and lift him up. In fact, one of the people is God's prophet, Jeremiah, who writes a letter to encourage all those who were held captive in Babylon during this time. This is what, what, what uh, Jeremiah writes to these captives. It's in Jeremiah chapter 29. He says, this is what the Lord says. It's when 70 years are completed for Babylon. And 70 years is a long time. Waiting can be a hard time. You need lots of encouragement. So Jeremiah says, when 70 years are completed, I will come to you, God says, and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Some of you have that verse memorized. Some of you should write that verse down and memorize it. I'm pretty convinced that when they read this letter, Daniel and his friends took that piece of that letter and they just started to repeat it over and over to themselves and to each other when things were hard, you know, for 70 years. Hey, God has a plan. God's working out a plan no matter what happens. God is working out his plan. How do you handle, how do you you choose to confront the chaos uh, or those voices in your head that tell you like, Hey, it's all over. It's done. You failed. You screwed up. God's not with you anymore. It didn't work. God's not real. See, I believe that speaking God's word to ourselves can be a real game changer in this and can help us reject that. And engaging in the Bible is so important for us to be able to do this well, to help us to remember God's story of faithfulness and his promises. It's so important that it's one of four key strategies we have for moving our mission forward here at Orchard Hill Church because it grounds us in eternal perspective, reminds us of who God is and what he's up to in our world, and it reminds us to expect God to show up, right? Because we see how he works and how he's going to work out our plan in this world, to look for that in our world. And that's the second thing that Daniel did. He expected God to show up. And I think this happened even long before he got to Babylon as he's walking those 500 miles to exile. I think Daniel is thinking about all those times that God had reached out to rescue his people throughout history. There's so many stories in that history that Daniel's recounting. I think he's thinking about how, the, how God had rescued Noah in the time of the flood. Or maybe he's thinking about how God had parted the Red Sea to save an entire nation of people who were in slavery. Daniel's probably thinking about the promise that God made to Abraham to bless the world through him and and to give him a big family. And you might think, you know, that took a while for God to fulfill that promise. But God came through. And maybe Daniel's thinking about Joseph, who's a young man like him, who was sold into slavery And God rescued him and then used him to save an entire world. Maybe this would be Daniel's turn for a miracle like that. I think he told himself these stories so often that he just expected God to show up around any corner. 
And he believed that even when things were out of control, God was still in control and he was going to show up. If he'd rescued people before, if he'd delivered people before, he would do it again for Daniel. And because of this, I think Daniel was able to see and to recognize God's work in his own life in the midst of this trial. He saw how God had arranged for the king's chief official to show him favor. And he had given him special gifts of wisdom and understanding and to be able to interpret dreams. These were gifts from God. Sometimes I think we're, we're waiting in the midst of our trial and we're wishing, well, I wish God would bless me in the same way. I wish he'd show up for me. I just want to encourage you. He already has. God has gifted each one of us in this room with unique gifts, with unique abilities. He's with us. He wants us to use these gifts. And if you don't know what those are, I would encourage you to sign up for a networking class here at our church. We'd love to help you discover how God has gifted you, how he's making you strong, and how you can use those gifts and those abilities to serve God and people around you, and then watch as God shows up through all of this, and he does amazing things. In fact, I think that real faith requires us to accept the responsibility to to know and to use what God has given us to lead ourselves and to lead others courageously. And Daniel accepted this responsibility. At our church, we call this investing in others. I think Daniel and his friends, again, they've walked that 500 miles, they get to Babylon, they're tired, they get a bath, they put on a fresh toga, knock at the door, room service! This guy pushes this cart into the room, and all of a sudden, all these smells start filling the room. It's like, here's the king's food on these carts, and it's got barbecue baby back rigs, you know? Some prime rib, maybe. Um, it's got those those warm rolls from Texas Roadhouse with that. It's almost lunchtime. I'm getting hungry. You know, and it's the sweet potatoes. Maybe it's got some scratch cupcakes. It's got fancy bottles of wine. It said he got food from the king's table, a daily allotment of it. Right? And they're sitting there probably thinking, you know, I know this stuff isn't on God's diet plan, but it doesn't look like there's a whole lot else to eat and... You know, maybe those dietary rules, maybe they don't apply while we're here in Babylon. Right? And the whisper in their head starts to tell them, and you know what? God's not here anyway. He's, he's not watching. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Right? And you'd be so tempted to just grab one of those baby bat rays and just start chewing on it. Well, Daniel rejects this idea. Right? He decides that even though they find themselves in a new world, they're not of this world. Right? And whether God is there or not, he is a child of God and he's living in God's kingdom wherever he is. And he accepts the responsibility to live like it and to bring that kingdom, to bring his father's world right into the heart of Babylon. I want you to notice something. Daniel's not a jerk about this. He, he doesn't, he's not rude about this. He's polite and he's respectful. Even to an enemy. And he asks for permission to not have to eat the food. It's like, I can just hear him saying, hey, you know, that food looks so good. Thanks for bringing us this food. Gosh, it smells good. It looks good, but uh, we can't eat it. Sorry. Uh, our God says that's going to pollute our bodies. And if we eat it, it's going to dishonor our God. And uh, we have a responsibility to live in a way that honors him. Would there be any way that, that you could just bring us some carrots, some beans, glass of water, 
And his friends were so relieved when the guard said no, right? It's like, oh, the guard said no, we're off the... And then Daniel, he rejects passivity again. He refuses to accept the guard's answer no, and he accepts responsibility for stepping up and saying to another person, would you please just test us for 10 days? And then, and then whatever happens will be on us. See what God does with this. You know, over and over, Daniel and his friends, they, they expected God to show up as they reject passivity and they accept responsibility for their own faithfulness. And they consistently refused to accept things in the culture that would dishonor God or that would disrupt their relationship with God. They did it respectfully, politely. Daniel's friends aren't trying to like shame anybody or prove anything or make a big judgment or a big statement, right? They're not trying to start a revolution. They're simply trying to maintain their relationship with God and to continue living in God's kingdom in the midst of this trial. And at the end of the day, God will use their real faith to make his own statement. Right? The guard isn't going to say, hey, Daniel's diet plan is amazing. The guard's going to say, Daniel's God is amazing. And the king is going to notice this too. The king's going to worship God. In fact, the king does notice. He notices that Daniel and his friends are ten times better than anybody else in all the kingdom in every matter of wisdom and understanding. Their demonstration of real faith, it opens this door for Daniel and his friends to lead courageously. They will use God's gifts, the strengths, the influence he's given them to help even their enemies prosper in this time. They rise to power and influence and God will use their real faith to orchestrate amazing, life-giving, faith-affirming encounters with his faithfulness. And God's faithfulness expresses itself over and over again in love, not just for a chosen few, but for the entire world. Isn't this what real faith does? Real faith expresses itself in love for God, love for others. It's how God and his plan are made known in our broken world. His plan to prosper and not to harm. His plan to bring a future. His plan to save the world through Christ's love. We have a great advantage today because we live in light of the cross and in the historical death and resurrection of Jesus, right? His most daring display of faithfulness and love. And so, so we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He's even given us his Holy Spirit so we can live out this real faith. So what was true for Daniel can certainly be true for us. But we accept this responsibility and go and lead courageously. We have the opportunity right now, as I invite Carla up, to remember God's faithfulness and what he did for us and what he accomplished uh, for us on the cross how nothing can separate us from love as we celebrate communion together.